Guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall. And today I'm very happy to have Eric's Tre- Eric Trexler on the show again. Uh, this is the second time he has been on the show, a solo one too long ago, actually, Eric. I, I feel like I've spoken to you more frequently than I have because I hear your voice, but I haven't actually spoken to you. So thank you for coming back on the show. Uh, let the audience yeah, know you're Thanks for having me back. Well. I appreciate yeah. it. Cool. Awesome. And again, we have Mike Isratel on the show. So uh, obviously everyone knows Mike already. Um, I won't go like a broken record on that. So I'm very happy to have them both on the show, though, because obviously very, very bright minds. And uh, this is a kind of quite new, uh, I guess, very niche topic. Um, It may be a topic that a lot of people wouldn't think is very exciting, but I think it probably excites us probably more than it should. And I think it'll also excite a lot of our listeners. And we're going to be talking about partitioning ratios or P ratios um, and some kind of how body fat influences those. So uh, in the mass research review, uh, which is fantastic, uh, Eric recently did a bit of a review about these. Uh, Mike has also spoken about this in various books uh, by Renaissance Periodization and the guys had a back and a forth. So I was like, uh, what better platform than to get them to talk back and forth kind of live so they can really have this an, an open floor to do it and then people can get a better understanding of where both of them are coming from uh, so that's what i wanted to dig into and so to start i wanted to try and see if i could define a partitioning ratio and as far as i was concerned i see it as kind of as weight goes up or down it's where does that kind of weight go lean tissue or fat tissue where does it come from and that's kind of given as a ratio so if you have a high p ratio and your gaining weight is going to go more towards lean tissue versus fat tissue, which is kind of the premise of where you are coming from in your article in mass, Eric. So I don't know if I want to start with Mike actually and talk about kind of what is your understanding of partitioning ratios? How important are they? Would your position be that kind of as you are leaner, you're going to have a superior partitioning ratio and hopefully gain more muscle versus fat, assuming that you're not too extremely lean, say, for men, not below 10% body fat or so, and females, I don't know, around the high teens or 18% around that figure. Would that be fair, Mike? Um, Pretty fair. I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. I can dig into that if you like, or um, I can dig into that after Eric sort of says his piece. Yeah, I guess because this started with Eric's kind of the article in Mass, which have you read? Mike, have you been able to read oh, that? Absolutely. You have. Yeah, Fantastic. I, I read a bunch of those. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, maybe we should start with you, Eric, and run through some of the the studies that you reviewed. I know it was kind of initiated by a mouse paper uh, in obese mice, and then you obviously looked over the Forbes and dug into the American football studies, which was super interesting. So yeah, what did you kind of conclude or review and then conclude from those? Yeah, so so like you said, it kind of started with a rodent study, and uh, and then I just kind of unpeeled the layers of the topic from there. And like Mike said, it's a pretty nuanced topic. It's uh, and like you said, it's kind of a niche topic. So we're going to go back and forth about it and quibble over the smallest details. Uh, but I think it is important to acknowledge on the front end, this is a very small piece of the puzzle when it comes to bulking or cutting. Uh, of course, Mike, you know I have a ton of respect for you and the work you do. And so if someone follows all of Mike's advice. They're going to make great gains. So we're quibbling over the, the really minor stuff here, digging into the details. Um, so I'm not going to spend too much time about the mouse study itself, just because I think a lot of people, when you go on and on about mechanistic rodent data, the whole time they're like, well, I'll start listening when you start talking about humans, right? Just because it gets 
more generalizable. So what I was looking at here is basically this idea that you mentioned, Steve, which is, you know, I'm more focused in the weight gain aspect. So when we're looking at bulking, can we actually manipulate our P ratio in a favorable way? Do we have the potential to favorably change our P ratio before we do a mass gaining phase by getting leaner beforehand? And so unfortunately, Mike, as you know, there's no like great study directly looking at that in a longitudinal way. And one of the challenging things with a topic like this that hasn't been studied super directly is we have to think outside the box and say, if this relationship holds up in the way we understand it, where might we find clues of that in the literature? We have to start leaning on different areas of literature. And I'll be the first to acknowledge some of those areas of literature uh, generalize pretty well. Some have bigger issues with generalizing them to this scenario. So you kind of have to lean on all these different areas of research. Some are better equipped to answer this question than others. But when I started the article, I kind of went back to the starting point, which is, well, this whole idea where we get lean and it makes our P ratio better for bulking, uh, where does that come from? And to to the best of my knowledge, it really originates with a couple review papers by Forbes and then kind of a revisited review paper by Kevin Hall. And so what they have is a couple models in those papers looking at overfeeding studies, so people gaining weight. And what they find is as your baseline body fat gets higher, your P ratio is unfavorably affected. For for the amount of weight you gain during overfeeding, less of it is being accumulated as fat-free mass. Okay, and so obviously that's not favorable. But when you look into the Forbes model and kind of try to figure out where the data come from, one of the funny things about it is it's hard to figure out like where the actual numbers came from. And you see like a figure with like five data points, and then it cites like seven or eight studies from which those five data points came. You have to dig through the references. The references don't have study titles on them. So you have to just look up like, the issue number and the volume number in the journal and like hope for the best and dig through it. But what you find in the Forbes model is a lot of the data from the leaner folks in the model, that's actually studies on refeeding uh, in anorexia nervosa patients. And so of course, that's confounded by the fact that, you know, with severe anorexia nervosa that requires intervention like that, um, there's a major... Uh, stimulus for the accretion of of fat-free tissue. I mean, there is major atrophy of critically important lean tissues that occurs late in, you know, advanced anorexia nervosa. Um, And then when you look at the more obese individuals in that model, these are people who are overfeeding without a resistance training stimulus, who who are are at a, a high body fat. And so I think it's quite intuitive to say, well, I mean, there, there's not going to be a lot of lean tissue being gained there because I mean, why would there, right? So Kevin Hall revisited this topic and kind of to to emphasize that point where it's hard to figure out where those data come from. In Kevin Hall's paper, I thought this was hilarious because Kevin Hall is like a beast when it comes to research. I mean, he's like, you know, really, really established in the field. And he mentioned in his review paper, he he didn't know that there was so much anorexia data in the Forbes model until a reviewer pointed it out when he submitted his first version of his revisited manuscript. And he was like, damn, I didn't know that, uh, which I thought was fascinating. Cause like if Kevin Hall didn't, if that didn't jump off the page to him, like, you know, how is anyone supposed to find that? 
So Kevin Hall revisited, found pretty much the same thing, but and he did account for you know removing some of the anorexia data to make sure that the model still held up reasonably well. But one of the things that's fascinating about Kevin Hall's weight gain model is my my issue is how could we use it? Uh, because again, this is overfeeding in people who are not lifting weights. So the stimulus to actually increase fat-free mass, I mean, simply is not there. And what you find when you look at the actual plotted data points in the figure is that pretty much everything below 30 kilograms of fat mass at baseline is a crapshoot. And so what I mean by that is if you reduce your fat mass in this model from 18 kilograms to 12 kilograms of fat mass, it's there's no way to say that there's going to be a discernible, reliable effect on your P ratio. And if you look at anyone in the model who's between 10 and maybe 16 kilograms of fat mass, uh, there are some of the lowest P ratios down around 0.2 and some of the highest up around 0.8. So looking at the data, it seems very difficult to suggest that you could realistically hope to modify anything in a predictable way within that range of basically less than 30 kilograms. And then when you get above 30 kilograms, again, we're talking about somebody with high body fat who's not resistance training. And of course, the intuitive thought would be if you're overfeeding in that scenario, you're going to be gaining a great deal of fat mass. Um, so, so as far as I can tell, that's kind of the, the, the main origin of this concept. And uh, I think the reason that I wanted to revisit it is not because I think it's the most catastrophically, uh, you know, if you misapply this concept, it's not going to be catastrophic in nature. Uh, it, it's fine. But I think what jumped out to me was that it just didn't seem to fit. Like my knee jerk reaction is it doesn't feel right based on empirical observations, you know, so if we have this issue um, where the, the higher body fat gets, you know, the harder it is to, to efficiently put on lean tissue, it's hard to justify that with, um, you know, looking at all the, the super heavyweight lifters and all the offensive and defensive linemen in football who seem to very reliably be able to put on some solid lean tissue without gaining a lot of fat mass necessarily in the process, even though they already have a great deal of body fat. Um, Another thing that the thing that really made me want to revisit the, the concept is my bias, which I acknowledge on the on the front end. A lot of the, the stuff I focused on as a grad student was weight regain. Uh, so looking at people who are actually doing this longitudinally, which is losing fat, and then watching what happens when weight starts to get regained. And so with this with this P ratio concept, we would expect that they lose weight, they lose body fat. And then in the weight regain process, they should have as lean, if not leaner gains, you know, because now they're gaining weight from a lower body fat percentage on the way back up. And we tend to find that P ratios in that longitudinal context during weight regain are either not altered or are unfavorably altered. So people who lose a whole bunch of body fat or people who get really, really shredded in some, in some cases, we'll see that their P ratio is actually worse in the weight regain stage. And, and again, it's, you know, Yo-yo dieting is notorious for being a, a really inefficient way to improve body composition because I think to some extent we have a likelihood to regain more fat than we lost and potentially make some uh, less favorable weight regain in terms of the P ratio that, that we observe. And one final thing I'll mention, I don't want to like go on a one hour rant here, but one other thing I want to mention is that if we interpret that P ratio curve as is, and we say, we'll be certain that throw weight, weight training into the mix, uh, you know, ignore the anorexia complications related with it. 
the, the, the model goes both ways. It goes both directions. And so if you were to say, because of this P ratio curve, you need to slide left on the curve and get to the higher P ratio so that you can then make leaner gains, that process of moving left down the curve involves a disproportionately higher loss of fat-free tissue. So the P ratio, it goes, uh, you know, it, it goes up and down in the context of weight gain and weight loss as the, mo the model is put together. So if you're trying to lose fat in order to get to a higher P ratio on your next bulk, you're also achieving a higher P ratio on the way down. So the idea is that you're losing fat-free mass so that you can gain fat-free mass on the other end and hope that it works out. But I guess my, my main concern with the application of it is I, I don't see, I, I don't know if it's safe to generalize this cross-sectional model in non-lifters and apply it to longitudinal settings in lifters. And I think the empirical data doesn't seem to hold up very well when we try to do that. And like you said, the one final thing I'll mention with with the football players, maybe not the best model to look at, but you know, football players are, are a great model, American football players. It's a great model because we've got different position groups with different body composition characteristics. We got some very lean position groups and some position groups where it's very common to have uh, obesity based on body fat percentage and BMI, and also insulin resistance, uh, which often is kind of the mechanism associated with this P ratio relationship. And when we look at longitudinal changes in body composition in American football players, we see that the linemen uh, are every bit as capable of gaining as much, if not more lean mass over a given observation period. And in many cases have similar, similar or better changes in body fat. So, so a lot of times we'll see that they gain as much or more lean mass while also losing fat mass along the way, actually having a better observed P ratio than the leaner individuals on the team. And the nice thing about this model is that they're all on the same team, training in the same gym with the same trainers, the same equipment. I mean, it's a really nice uh, kind of real world experimental control setup. The downside, of course, is that the position groups have different physiological demands and might be training differently uh, as a result of that. So that, that's something I acknowledge on the front end. And it brings up that concept where we have to lean on some research that maybe isn't perfectly generalizable. But that, that's kind of the, the starting point, like my two cents, I guess. Uh, just to really quickly summarize, if I, if I can, just for the listeners, it's just you, you dug into the relevant evidence that's there at the moment. You dug into the Forbes, which is often what people kind of hold their hat on or hang their hat on rather. And uh, it just doesn't seem to apply to kind of lifting trainees we're not the, the subjects just weren't appropriate and then when you have tried to look at subjects who maybe are more similar to us the again the evidence doesn't seem to support it in your eyes uh and so yeah and also via your own experience uh from your studies it, it you haven't seen this hold out so i guess you just yeah the, the p ratio and the, the claim of it being superior when you're leaner just doesn't seem to have a lot of evidence behind it and i know mike you have maybe interpreted studies a little bit differently have some different experiences as well in your own kind of previous experiences with people and seeing kind of how they've gained at various time courses as well yeah so i sort of like to do two things potentially thing one is um <clears throat> I actually found eric's work as i find most of his work quite compelling in this case and uh, just to make sure that we collectively as 
whatever the hell we are, evidence-based fitness people, leaders, whatever, that we're not uh, stepping too far in the other direction. I, I do have a couple of questions for him to sort of red team his analysis. Uh, I was going to say the opposite of steel manning is actually straw manning, but I don't intend to straw man your analysis. So I think red teaming is probably the best term. Sort of asking difficult questions that maybe you have some answers for, maybe a, a bit more hazy. And then after that, I actually do have a bit of a conceptual model as to how I think this all works together, taking in all of the different pieces, some of which seem contradictory, but I don't think they are. Um, and that I'd like to present that at some point. So which which one do you guys think should go first? Maybe the, the red, was it the red lining? Red team. Red team. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, uh, Eric. Um, so, uh, again, this is, this is from a perspective of if, um, I always like to think of it this way. If I say something on the internet uh, and a really smart incel comes along and asks a really inconvenient question, it's potentially quite embarrassing. Because you're like, oh, shit, I've just been making this up this entire time. So uh, I'll ask you incel questions. And uh, I'm not even sure I entirely agree with all these. But these are things that come to my mind as, you know, is there a doubt, right, about, about some of the, the stronger conclusions you're drawing. So uh, the first one is um, somebody could ask sort of why you're using sumo wrestlers to prove that P-ratios don't degrade at higher body fats when they could have very low P-ratios but still not zero or negative and to create a phenomenal amount of muscle mass at the expense of a phenomenal amount of fat mass, which is actually exactly how we observe them as profoundly fat, but also pretty muscular. If sumo wrestlers actually, if a high degree of adiposity actually did lower P ratios, wouldn't we still expect sumo wrestlers to be pretty fucking muscular, but super fucking fat? Um, how do we, how is the sumo wrestler an exhibition of the fact that P ratios may be pretty high at higher body fats when somebody could look at them and say like, yeah, they're super fucking fat. Like they're not big Ramey. They're not Brian Shaw. You know, these guys are super muscular, re relatively lean. Sumo wrestlers are super muscular ish. They have the highest LBMs raw, but they also weigh like 500 pounds and they have unreal body fat percentages. So as far as P ratio, P ratio is a claim to simultaneous high muscularity and low adiposity. How is the sumo wrestler illustrative of that, where they could just be illustrative of low but still positive P ratios, which I don't think anyone ever really claims that P ratios dip into the negatives. You know, we're not saying like once you get real fat, the more you train, the more you gain, the more muscle you lose. We just don't gain it as fast, resulting in what I would surmise would be a sumo wrestler. So just this in just another really quick way, in an alternate universe where sumo wrestlers, so you propose that sumo wrestlers exhibit not, not much lower P ratios or, or equal ones on their way up through their body uh, masses as folks that are leaner in an alternate universe in which sumo wrestlers exhibited still positive but lower P ratios, would they look different? And what would that look like and what the conclusions be? Yeah, so that, that's a great point. And I think one of the challenging things here is we have to make assumptions about rates of changes of two different things going on and also try to figure out if the P ratio is an observation or a driving factor when we talk about body composition of sumo wrestlers and, and even, you know, offensive defensive linemen and things like that, because obviously those are sports where not only is it advantageous to acquire more muscle mass and be able to generate force, but there's also just the old like Newton diagrams, right? Like it's a heavy body pushing against a heavy body. We, you know, we got to consider inertia and momentum and all this stuff in phys physics class that I hoped I would never have to revisit. But um, so, so, 
without question, if you're gaining a whole bunch of fat and a whole bunch of muscle, that's both are going to influence influence the P ratio that's observed. But the question is, can a sumo wrestler not make lean gains if they were trying to be more mindful of of keeping body fat down, which of course, in their sport doesn't doesn't make any sense, really. So I think looking at sumo wrestlers in a vacuum, I don't think is strong evidence in either direction of this this P ratio relationship, because we're not we're treating the p-value as if it's kind of this independent driver of body composition rather than a consequence of both wanting to be very, very big and very, very strong. So I'll concede if 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 I was hanging my hat on, hey, how do you explain sumo wrestlers? My argument sucks for sure. Um, but one of the things I find interesting where sumo wrestlers come into play is that when we look at research on just, you know, drug-free athletes in general, who have like the absolute highest fat-free mass values out there, we're not seeing anybody get into that list while also being lean. And so it, it is a little bit challenging to think if, if staying lean is going to kind of have a really tangible, meaningful impact on your ability to put on muscle, uh, you know, because of things related to insulin sensitivity, sensitivity and things like that. You would think that, in my opinion, at some point, we would see at least a nice mixture of, of people who either are trying to stay lean or just really don't care and want to be absolutely huge. You would think that we would still be able to see people in those higher tiers of drug-free, fat-free mass values with a variety of different body body compositions. You, you know what I mean? Like You should be able, at least, to get there without accepting you know, this really high degree of adiposity along the way. And theoretically, you should be able to utilize this longitudinally to bulk up, cut back down, optimize the P ratio, bulk back up, add more muscle, cut down, optimize the P ratio. And so I, I would think that it, it wouldn't be this observation where even across sports, not just in sumo, but but we really struggle to see people who are getting up to those absolute top level drug-free, fat-free mass values uh, you know, at, at really low body fat percentages. And I will agree, you know, some of the evidence that we presented uh, in, in the mass article, it, it's a lot of stuff that's circumstantial. It's a lot of stuff that's indirect. And, and you can ask some of these questions well, where you say, well, wait a minute, are we really certain that this disproves this kind of P ratio concept? And from the start, it, it's quite difficult to prove that something can never have an influential impact under any circumstance. Like that, that's a very difficult thing to, to prove inherently. We basically have to disprove the alternate hypothesis in all cases, which is tremendously challenging. What I tried to do with the mass article was at least say, well, here are some instances in a variety of different types of data where if this P ratio thing really is a driving factor, it seems with all the other circumstances at play to basically wash out. So even if it is a thing that exists, we're not seeing it having an important independent driving force in this body of literature and that body of literature, but you know, we were unsatisfied just as as you sound like like you probably are with with kind of looking at the indirect stuff. And so, Greg and I, we haven't published this yet, but we basically did an individual individual data level meta analysis. Uh, so we tried to gather a bunch of open access uh, individual raw data from studies looking at hypertrophy where we knew people's body fat at the beginning, and we could see how much fat they gain and how much lean mass they gain over the course of that intervention. And so we were able to get together seven studies, not a ton, but most studies don't have open data. And so we had 161 total subjects, and we could put them all in a model and, uh, and basically look at like, was baseline body fat percentage a predictor of 
lean mass gains or fat mass gains or a combination of the two, something approximating a P ratio. Now, the problem was we couldn't use P ratio as the outcome because some people, they, they recomp, you know, they, they gain muscle or lean mass while losing weight. And so then your P ratio becomes negative, but that's certainly not a bad thing in terms of making lean gains. So we kind of came up with this metric, which is basically the change in fat-free mass minus the change in fat mass. So the higher it is, the better. You are rewarded for gaining lean mass and you are penalized for gaining fat mass. So it, it's not a perfect uh, you know, linear transformation of P ratio by any means, but it's a lean gains metric that is close-ish to what we're, what we're trying to get at. And so we put all this stuff into a model, 161 data points. And I wouldn't expect anyone to accept this at face value. We still have to publish the results and really detail the methods we used. Um, but, but basically, what we found was baseline body fat, there was a significant relationship where baseline body fat did predict outcomes in this lean gains metric, but it was in the opposite direction of what the P ratio concept would indicate. So the people with higher body fat percentage at baseline uh, had significantly greater improvements in this lean gains uh, metric. And the, the way we did that, we put them all into a regression model and we used uh, linear mixed models with random intercepts so that we could account for the variability from study to study and build that into the model. But that, that sounds like I'm saying, oh, cool, this thing goes the other direction, like that's proof, that's science, like, but, but that's not the case. We wanted to really rigorously look at this, this data in an unbiased way. So we dig deeper and we say, well, okay, this is a weird metric, like it's kind of a P ratio-ish, but let's look at changes in fat-free mass, let's look at changes in fat mass, you know, like let's just look at those two together. And what we found was baseline body fat percentage did not at all predict gains in fat-free mass. Uh, slope of zero, high p-value, it, it was not related in our model. What we found was that entire relationship of that lean gains metric that we saw in the initial analysis, it was purely due to the loss of fat mass. And so what the models would indicate is the people with higher body fat percentage were gaining extremely similar amounts of fat-free mass compared to leaner people. The only difference was they were more likely to, to have some recomposition going on. They were likely to lose a little bit more fat mass along the way uh, or gain more lean mass without an additional gain uh, in, in fat mass. So basically, the, the fat-free mass wasn't driving the relationship. It was just whether or not you were likely to have a little bit of fat loss along the way. Uh, so so that, that was what our model showed. Uh, and we are very excited to share that with people. But, you know... <laughs> It's the first time I've ever had to do a meta-analysis quickly because I have to go on a podcast in two days. <laughs> so I was like scrambling to like get all the models done. And, and so, you know, my, my take on it is that, you know, you, you, Mike, you mentioned that you had a, a conceptual model that, that kind of tied everything together. And I do as well. And so I'd love to hear yours and, and share mine. And what I would expect is that honestly, Mike, they're probably quite similar. So like coming into this conversation, I figured we're probably going to agree a hell of a lot more than we disagree. Um, but well, I do I'm understand here only to disagree. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, we, we did have a very fiery exchange on Instagram. <laughs> uh, tempers got heated. Um, I said I used some profanity that, that I do regret. I, I apologize for that. Um, but no, but but I don't want to cut you off. You did have some other questions, but I, I wanted to at least present that information 
to say like, yeah, if, if you're going to go at like all these indirect bodies of evidence, I, I concede indirect stuff is indirect stuff. And I am generalizing and going out on a limb with some of that other information. Um, and, but, but, you know, my, my pushback on that is, am I generalizing and saying alignment is similar to a, a, a skill position football player in all ways? Is that a fair, safe generalization? Maybe not. But then I look back at the raw data where this whole thing comes from, and I think looking at longitudinal weight regain stuff in untrained people is at least as generalizable than, you know, cross-sectional stuff in untrained people. I think, yeah, you know, training differences between linemen and skill positions, it's not great, but it's still longitudinal training data in people lifting, you know, so... So, and I would agree that probably the the weakest thing that I lean on in the article is the sumo wrestler thing because it makes a lot of assumptions about the rate at which and the timing at which fat mass is being gained and lean mass is being gained and, and the relative proportions along the way. You know, we could fill in a lot of different assumptions where we could massage that that observation to lean in one way or the other. Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. Sure. Oh, very, very good points. Uh, I have, I, guess, I suppose, at least just one more question there before I sort of share my conceptual model that I, I think is a reasonable guess at what may be going on. And that uh, in the overfeeding studies, the people that were very fat uh, exhibited poorer p ratios than the people that were leaner and you point out that that was without the presence of resistance training it's a very good point but perhaps somebody uh, disinclined to agree would ask why you think that not only so it, it's pretty obvious that the injection of weight training in that scenario would improve everyone's p ratios uh, the question is the source sort of seems to be an embedded assumption in, in your use of, of the, that there's no training involved, that what you're saying is if training was involved, not only would everyone's, you know, let's say fat people P ratios are here, leaner people's are here, weight training clearly would do this, but you're kind of implying it might do this. Is there a basis for that implication or, or is that not something you're well, I would say that's not something that I'm implying. So what I'm implying, what, what most of my conclusions are about are whether or not we can move ourselves along that P-ratio curve. It's not the fact that a P-ratio curve exists. It's, is the P-ratio driving body composition or is the P-ratio an observation as a result of body composition? So it, there's a review paper by Deleuze from 2018 where, where they very, very, they really dive into the P ratio concept in a nuanced way. And again, they're coming at it from the perspective of cycles of weight regain and seeing that in many cases after an extreme weight loss attempt, whether it's getting super lean or losing a ton of fat, the P ratio is either unaltered or a little bit worse. And they present an idea of the P ratio that I think holds up a little bit better with longitudinal applications, which is that the P ratio is a thing. And the P ratio differs from individual to individual. Um, but what we see is that the P ratio in longitudinal context tends to hold up pretty well so that people with a bad P ratio, you know, it, they, they lose weight, they gain weight. Their P ratio is kind of an intrinsic characteristic that, 
you know, people with an unfavorable P ratio, it's not that they're, it's not that they became obese and their P ratio got bad. It's that they have an, an inherently unfavorable P ratio that is just kind of like the cards that you were dealt in life. And that probably predisposed them to becoming obese. And so it's an intrinsic factor that we might be able to ma manipulate a little bit. But the only times I've seen it really manipulated in a longitudinal context is people making it worse by doing extreme weight loss practices and then rapid overfeeding afterwards. So it's not that I, I don't think this P ratio curve exists. It, it certainly appears to. And I think that uh, when it comes to looking at an individual who has this inherent P ratio characteristic, you know, the question is when they try to do a longitudinal intervention to, to change their body composition, what's going to influence their P ratio, either on the way up or the way down? And so in, in this case, we'll say, let's talk about the way up. So whether you're lean or obese and you're trying to, to gain some muscle, what's going to affect the P ratio? Uh, I think to some extent, there's an inherent uh, intrinsic P ratio that you were born with, that, that it's kind of what you get to work with. What can you do to ma manipulate it? I would say control your magnitude of overfeeding and control your training stimulus uh, and hope that you respond reasonably well to resistance training. So I, I think there are things we can do to adjust it. I think resistance training is one of those modifiable factors. But uh, I think to some extent, we have to be cautious about how we assign causality when we say, you know, an obese person with, you know, an unfavorable P ratio, it's quite possible that they became an obese person in many, in many, uh, a contributing factor could be this intrinsic P ratio quality that they can manipulate, but, but we're all dealt kind of a different, uh, a different hand, so to speak. Okay. Um, so, I guess, is it okay if I present my model of how things maybe work? Go for it, So, yeah, I think this is like a three sort of uh, this curve that I envision of P ratios is sort of three pretty distinct components. Potentially, this is just a hypothesis. Um, the first component would be what P ratio looks like at competitive body fat levels, sub 10% for men, sub 17 for women. And I think uh, it's some pretty good data to suggest and pretty decent real world experience from a lot of bodybuilders to suggest that it's probably not that great, uh, worse than average. So if you are trying to potentiate muscle gain and your idea to do so is to get to three and a half percent body fat first and then ride the wave up, for a while, there's no wave. <laughs> so this also, um, I think, clashes with some recommendations that I've seen for post-show recovery, where I mean, I, I used to be the person, and I guess I still am, but I used to be more vociferous, that after you get show lean, that you go right into a massing phase. And I was met with a considerable amount of uh, sort of antithetical response, people saying that well, you know what you really need is a maintenance phase because you can't gain muscle uh, at all after a show. And I, uh, my response was like, well, to the extent that you can, that'd be sweet. But also, a massing phase at that point gains fat, which is exactly what you need. And if you take a maintenance phase after the show, you're just staying 
leaner than you should be. And it's all the it's all the bad possible things you could all at the same time. So getting a little bit fatter after the show, which is sweet because people, I think a lot, and, and maybe this is a take home point that, that Eric and I maybe front so long as he signs off on it. Uh, I think people overvalue the post show transition period of like, I don't want to get fat right away after the show. Like, you kind of do, you kind of do. And it's, it's fun to enjoy Oreo as long as you can control your lower back pumps and sleep apnea. It's fun to enjoy some Oreos and stuff after the show. Cause if you want to potentiate some muscle gain, you got to get back into the healthy body weight range, body fat range rather where your body's not freaking out about like, look, I don't have enough body fat to operate basic functions. Everything you put in your mouth, I'm turning into fat until you gain some fucking fat. What's wrong with you? Cause you know, we all know through evolution survival comes considerably before, you know, aesthetic muscularity. So, um, I suppose, Eric, that's a fine view in your case uh, to the extent that I've described. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely, I think the, the the worst thing you could do for the majority of competitors is try to cling to leanness after a show. I think the rate, I think some people lean into it too hard and say like, sweet, the more fat in the short period of time, the better. <laughs> like, I, I love it. It just I, makes I, you I miserable. Think it, <laughs> and I think what we're not, we're not necessarily trying to get to an exact body fat. I mean, we are in a way, but I think what you want to do is ride their trajectory and say, listen, realistically, what's the rate of, of lean mass gain I can have here? Probably not going to gain much at first, but like, let, let's try to ease into this. So I, I recommend something that's very, very in line with uh, like Helms and the recovery diet kind of approach where it's like, listen, we're not reverse dieting. We're not adding three grams of carbs every two weeks or anything like that. It's, we do need to put on some fat but we don't need to be in an enormous rush, right? So like you are going to put it, put on some fat. It is fine. The first few, you know, the first five, 10, 15 pounds are not going to be the leanest weight you've ever gained, but we don't need to gain 40 pounds in, in three weeks, you know, because there is some degree of lean mass we can gain. We want to titrate that a little bit, but I, I'm very much on board with, with what you're saying. Super. So then I would say that this, that's part, part one of the curve. And then part two, I would say, is I, I would bifurcate it into natural athletes versus supernatural. We should just use that term from now on. Supernatural. Uh, yeah, I like that. That's good. Um, so I think for natural athletes, from something like, I just keep it simple, we'll use males as an example, 10 to 20 to 25% fat. I think you have two things happening at the same time. One is a decline in insulin sensitivity, which is not good for muscle gain, but has been shown through numerous reviews to be of minor importance to natural athletes within the normal uh, exposures to insulin. So I think it's a minor concern. Uh, you know, ideally, it'd be as high as possible, but not a huge deal. And at the same time, you actually see what I would typify as a net positive rise in estrogen conversion and estrogen production, which actually does potentiate muscle growth and hugely potentiate strength increases. So I think that as you gain from 10% to 20, 25% fat, there's a net negative, or sorry, a, a negative effect of reducing insulin sensitivity, but I think a net positive effect of increasing uh, estrogen and almost certainly total androgen availability, I would say testosterone probably increases, uh, you know, significantly beyond 10%, which is pretty lean and kind of on the low test side of things already. I mean, you go below 10%, you're, you're now a, sort of like a neutered person, um, but I would say those things tend to cancel each other out roughly, roughly, and, and uh, further research has yet to elucidate whether or not the, which way that curve points. But I would say that results in, in roughly the same P ratios, uh, my prediction, between 10 and 20 to 25 percent 
So if, if folks, you know, ask us all the time in our webinars, like, hey, like, you know, I'm at 13%, should I diet down to 10 to get more muscle? We're like, <laughs> you, yeah, if you like, like looking like that, but there's going to be no pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. Can you continue to gain until 18 or 20? Yeah, super. And as a matter of fact, it'll give you more time to gain more muscle. And then there's other stuff I suppose we'll cover later in the podcast where like there's other concerns, strategic ones. Like, you, you know, if you're a competitive bodybuilder, you have a show in six months, you don't want to see yourself at 20% because that just means you have to dig your way out of a giant hole. But Concerns like that that are not P ratio related directly, I would say the P ratio is roughly equivalent for most males between 10 and roughly 25%. Um, and then this is where things get hazy, the overfeeding literature. So I'm relatively convinced by and some, me some mechanistic assumptions on my part of uh, the estrogen to androgen ratio in highly adipose individuals. Uh, you know, gee whiz, after 25, 30, 35% fat, you may be quite estrogenic and not sufficiently androgenic. Um, and the insulin sensitivity may at that point cost you a little bit more than just sort of uh, a, a very fractional amount of your gains. General health tends to be a little bit more compromised. Absolutely work capacity in that regard. Recovery ability, like, you know, I've been fat. I've been that fat. And when you're that fat, like you take 10 minutes between every set of leg presses because you're dry heaving all the time because you're just too fucking fat. So I would say that I don't necessarily expect a P ratio to drop a ton north of that, but I would be, my, my prediction if I was betting money on it is anyone north of 25, 30, 35%, that sort of range, north of that P ratios, I would expect actually would take a decline, but I'd be very specific about how I state this. Uh, probably wouldn't take a decline in a cross-sectional analysis. The real thing I think people want to know is not actually, it, do fat people gain muscle more easily or more, more difficultly? than leaner people. What they want to know is me. If me, YouTube watcher or Instagram user, if I'm at 10% fat and I go to 20, how does that look versus if I am at 35% fat and do I go to I go to 45%? Like if I'm at 35% and someone's like, dude, fucking ball bro, go man, <laughs> you know, are they giving me a really good advice or is it maybe slightly suboptimal advice that two-factor problem, one, the P ratio could sort of suck. And two, I could just end up with 45% body fat, which is itself terrible. And if someone says, you know, the P ratio is actually much worse when you get close to 10%, then I'd be like, oh, fuck that. I'm just going to stay fat and build muscle. Maybe I'm sort of being ripped off in that regard. So if, if, if a person presented to me and was like, you know, let's say 30% fat, I said, what, what should I do? I'd say, you know, I could diet down to like 20%, go back up to 25, and then diet to like 15 and go back up to 20 and then stay somewhere between like, oh, 10 and 12 and 20 and just do recycles and you'll be some really cool combination of getting bigger and getting leaner. Um, because that north end of 25, 30, 35 plus, I think there's some significant risks, although in the literature, it's not, it's not very clear that those people in a forward-facing individual situation would gain poor pay ratios as they continued massing. Uh, I think anecdotally, a lot of bodybuilders, myself included, have been to those body fats and things start to not work so great at those body fats. And I think the overfeeding studies di di uh, directly, I suppose to some extent directly sans weight training, do suppose that like, man, maybe not great things happen north of the, you know 30% body fat or something like that. So that would be sort of my three component model there of like anywhere between 10 and 25% or 20%, pretty good, um, roughly equivalent. So don't worry about the details. If you're dipping below 10%, that's something you should only do if you're trying to get contest lean or lean for a photo shoot. It is not a potentiator. Um, and and uh, in anything north of you know, 25, 30, 35, I said it's probably a certainly bad idea for your health, uh, definitely a bad idea for how 
much skin you accumulate, which by the way, never goes back. Um, and uh, maybe not the greatest idea from a P-ratio perspective uh, either, but I think there's that middle ground there, which many, many, many people occupy, and thus the uh, obsession with P-ratios, uh, and most people should probably be, as I think the implication of Eric's uh, sort of communication in the recent mass issue is, it's like, yeah, it's a P-ratio, maybe a thing, it's probably roughly equivalent in a huge um, d degree of body fat ranges because of the sort of counterbalancing effect of various hormones, um, and it's not something to just get completely psychotic over, but boy, oh boy, does the internet like to get psychotic over P ratios. Um, no matter of fact, you just, you see anyone of any body fat on YouTube, you just comment P ratio and that's it. You got them dead to rights. <laughs> you, you stupid asshole. Haven't you heard of a Forbes review? Um, and, uh, I think that's kind of my cursory analysis and my sort of best hypothetical guess going forward. And I'd, I'd love to see if Eric thinks I'm making any giant, um, misestimates there. Can I just no. say, sorry, Eric, just quickly, yeah. females can roughly add about 10% on top of those figures there or thereabouts. Does that, that work? I think it's like it's five to 10. Five I to would 10. say seven's probably best, but I think we're, again, picking at a, a carcass that has not been sufficiently analyzed in the literature for us to be making all things. I'd say seven, just for, but seven's so fucking hard to add up. You know what I mean? <laughs> and also, there's something that we will probably touch on is estimating body fats in, in the, the first place is kind of hard yeah. within those ranges so sure. five to ten is a great range um go on eric sorry hi guys steve here just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service at revive stronger we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level if you're interested check the description and sign up no, and I love uh, what you guys have done over there with the metric system. It's a beautiful thing, just adding 10 all the time or multiplying by 10. It's, <laughs> it's really system. lovely. Uh, it's great. Um, so I, I think what's interesting, so my biggest curse is I really, really like science. And so there's a, there's a lot of people that I have academic disagreements with, but practically it kind of washes out. And I, I think this is one of those scenarios because what you just described you know, being super lean, are you likely to have a pretty rough P ratio? Uh, yes, I, I think I think we we definitely agree with that. Um, especially if you actively got that lean, which most people do. Like, there's not a lot of people who are just kind of rolling around. You know, like roll out of bed at five percent body fat. Usually, that's an intentional weight loss, and that, that's where we get into that stuff with the Delu review that I mentioned. So we're we're on board there, on the same page. Uh, you know, talk, talking with the male numbers just as a point of reference and then, you know, add 7.8 for, for females. Uh, I think that's our precise number we settled on. Um, you know, with, with males 10 to 20, 25% body fat, yeah, I, I think P ratio within that range is pretty much a wash, uh, just, just based on the, the different areas of, of literature I mentioned. Um, whether that's from, you know, several factors at play that are really balancing each other out or, or just, you know, that it's just simply not that big of a driving factor in the first place. I mean, you know, I, I just, I think we're in agreement that someone who wants to bulk, if you're anywhere in that, you know, 10 to 25% range, we, we really wouldn't expect much, um, much worry or concern about how that might be impacting one's P ratio. I think the bigger drivers of the P ratio are, that intrinsic characteristic you were born with. And like, you know, Mike, you alluded to the overfeeding studies and we do see lean versus uh, obese individuals in acute overfeeding. They respond differently. You know, they, they accumulate different amounts of tissue. And I, I think that is 
indicative of that intrinsic factor of, of people who have more or less predisposition to store fat during overfeeding. I mean, I think those are instances where we see that intrinsic nature of the P ratio, and we can't definitively separate obesity status from obesity predisposition in that case, because we've already let it play out by the time those groups are formed. But, but anyway, yeah, up to 25%, I think we're totally on board. And then I think the only place where we really differ here is an academic uh, disagreement beyond 25% where I'm viewing it in a vacuum, where I go into it and I make no assumptions about the individual's future goals, uh, how they weigh health ramifications versus their ability to put on lean mass. Like I'm not making any assumptions about how you weigh the success of your bulk versus health ramifications, performance in a future uh athletic endeavor, the accumulation of excess skin, that stuff is is completely up to them. And I'm just saying, you know, they're coming to me and they say, Eric, I'm 31% body fat, I want to bulk. Um, do I need to cut in order to be able to potentiate my, my lean mass accretion after that? And I haven't seen evidence that would necessarily convince me that that's the case. So, so I still maintain skepticism, academically viewing that in a vacuum. But I will acknowledge, uh, in the interest of being intellectually honest, we have gotten into a set of circumstances that is rare in practice, uh, where none of those factors matter. So I think you and I are viewing it from a different perspective. Like I'm saying, in a vacuum, this is my body fat, I want to bulk, do I need to worry about my P ratio? And a lot of the, the arguments that, that you brought into it, rightfully so, from a practical perspective is, well, what's this, what's this going to do for our next cut? How far away from our ideal body fat are we? How's this going to impact my health and performance in a variety of, of uh, circumstances? So I, I think we just have a slight divergence there where we get into a, a really, uh, it really just comes down to the circumstance of what that individual is trying to accomplish and, and what their, um, how they weigh all the different pros and cons of gaining weight when they're already at 30, 35, 40% body fat. So I will say the practical perspective, when I come at this question, and I think in practice, how, how do I want to make sure people uh, resist misapplying this concept. This is the one I get a lot. And this is really why I have an interest in the topic is one common misapplication. And Mike, you alluded to it earlier, but a lot of times I'll see somebody who they are, I don't know, 18, 22% body fat, pretty new to lifting, don't have a lot of muscle mass. Their dream physique, the, the end of the, the road in terms of their goals involves being way more muscular and way leaner. And they're just getting started. And they're asking me, do I necessarily need to cut before I bulk? And I, I see a lot of people misapplying the P ratio concept and saying, well, if I don't cut first, my bulk is going to suck. I'm going to struggle to put on lean mass. And I'm not saying that you would suggest that's the case, Mike, because I, I don't think you would suggest that. But that's where I see it getting applied a lot. And I think it's, uh, in some cases, uh, counterproductive because instead of spending the first couple of years of this person's lifting experience, falling in love with the process and loving their training and just focusing on getting into the gym, learning the lifts, having a great time with it, getting stronger, seeing that day-to-day -day increase on the bar, you know, they're in there just saying like, God, I wish I could eat more. I'm kind of hungry all the time. My energy's low. You know, the gym is an afterthought and they're not falling in love with, with hitting the weights and putting on the muscle. And we see, you know, a little bit down the road in many cases, and this is just full blown anecdote, you know, let me, I always like to 
call myself out for that whenever I, I get down that road. But I, I know personally, as a coach, I've had a lot of people come to me and they say, I, I tell you what, I'm, I'm willing to try anything. I'm a hard gainer. Nothing's ever worked. Uh, and this is kind of my last resort. I, I need a coach. And I say, when's the last time that you bulked and didn't really get concerned when you gained just a, a little bit of fat, you know? And they're like, well, it, once I gain fat, then I know my P ratio is going to suck and I have to cut back down. And it's like, you're not, you're not a hard gainer. You've never bulked. And when we just commit to a bulk and we say, we'll, we'll deal with the ramifications later, we'll deal with a little bit of fat gain later, let's just bulk. You find that hard gainers exist. We know that, that people have variable responses to weight training, but you do find that a large percentage in my, in my experience of uh, self-diagnosed hard gainers are people who are really just very shy about bulking. And I would hate for the P ratio concept to be something that stands between a person uh, and their goals, you know, so, so when someone comes to me and they say, my dream physique is to be uh, way bigger and way leaner. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not at a point where one bulk is going to be the difference between me and serious adverse health outcomes. I like to leave the ball in their court and say, which one are you most excited about right now? Are, are you really stoked about getting lean and then enjoying the process along the way? Or are you really stoked about getting into the gym you know, hitting 350 on the bench, you know, hitting all these big numbers, and then we'll deal with the cut later. And then, you know, the, the thing that I always hate to see is when someone thinks they have to cut first, they do that first cut, they know that they're under muscled relative to their long term goal, they finish the cut, it sucked, energy level was low, they were hungry. And then they look in the mirror, and they're like, I did all that work for this, I don't even have any muscle, I'm not happy with what I see at the end of the cut. And so those are the, the, the practical applications that I see consistently. I think the only place where we really have a divergence, which is more academic, is in these, these circumstances of, you know, I'm 30, 35% body fat. What do I do from here? And at that point, I think the other factors play in way more than a theoretical relationship with the P ratio, which is how's your health? How do you feel? What's the, pri the main priority here? Um, you know, and even if you've got someone who's like a defensive lineman at some, at some point, they're going to say, dude, I can barely move on the field and I'm winded, you know, ha before the play's over. And, and some of those other circumstances become much more, more important. I think that's an excellent summary. Um, I tend to agree with pretty much all that. Um, I will say there's an alternative path for people in the situation you described, which are, let's say, some level of let's say they're fifteen percent fat, and uh, maybe eighteen, fifteen to eighteen, and they're like, "Look, I, I want to gain, I want to get jacked," and you already know that to some extent they value a leaner physique because that's what's been keeping them from trying to put on muscle. Uh, I, I absolutely think that for a large fraction of people, your approach that you described of let's just bulk and we'll deal with the fat later, I think that's an absolutely awesome approach. I think there's another group of people from that sectioned off from that same initial group where two things. One, they value their leanness enough that a bulk from a moderate to high body fat percentage, as far as physique athletics is concerned, will demoralize them, uh, even if they're gaining strength. And in addition to that, some of them, maybe under illusions of how muscular they really are and are not sufficiently bought into the bulking process, because they think they're pretty muscular, but it's the leanness that they really should be after. But I really want to gain my mass, and it's just a, a giant gobbledygook in their head. 
So for those folks, and this is something you can only ascertain once you talk to someone that's a client for, you know, a few emails and maybe a phone call. Um, and then for those folks that are in that camp, I would say it may be a good idea to take them down to 10 to 12% body fat first, and of course, explaining the entire longitudinal process to them. And then once they're down there, two things happen. One, they're pretty lean, and so they cannot be worried about being fat. And two, then they uh, also can see how embarrassingly not jacked they are. And that lights the impetus of like, fuck this lean shit. I'm fucking Harry Potter. Um, first movie, Harry Potter, not the last. Because you know what I'm saying? In that last movie, Harry Potter was... He was dealing with some heavyweight shit. Just kidding. He was always skinny. So, and then they're kind of like, well, fuck, like, all right, I really do need to put on a mask. And within health constraints, definitely P ratio constraints, which aren't that big of a deal. Uh, and also aesthetics constraints and skin thickness and all that other stuff constraints. Starting them at 10 to 12% fat, you have bought them an enormous bulking runway. And I actually think that's the most valuable thing about bulking and cutting isn't the the repotentiation necessarily the p ratios it's the fact that within what is still a healthy athletic and aesthetic body fat range you have bought yourself a shitload of room to bulk and then you communicate to them hopefully you did beforehand like look motherfucker we are going to mass and mini cut our way up to 20 percent and they're like fuck that's 10 percent family imagine how much muscle that shit is too and over the next, I don't know, year and a half, you get them from 10 to 12 to 18 to 20, and they've got so much muscle. And then you probably sort of repeat that process where you do a pretty more serious cut, deal with the fatigue of the cut afterwards, get them back down into that leaner range, and then take a long time to go all the way through. What I think those people generally get stuck doing is first, they never commit to getting lean enough to just put that fucking stake in the coffin. Okay, fuck it, I'm lean. Now I can really mass. Um, and what they also do is some of them that do get lean, get caught in that trap of as soon as they go from 10 to 13%, they're like, all right, mass is over. My abs are a little blurry. They quit on the process and they're not willing to do what it takes to sort of buy into the, buy into the situation. Um, so I think there is a group of people that absolutely just need to kind of just, just start training and eating and don't worry about body fat. Shit will take care of itself. I think if you're a beginner super common question that I'll eventually make a longer YouTube video about is like, what do I do if I'm skinny fat as a beginner? My best recommendation to start with, as a matter of fact, for almost all beginners, is don't worry about your body weight. Just eat well and train. And a year later, you'll be recomped like crazy. And then you'll be leaner and more muscular. And we can think like, okay, do we do a little cut to give you some more breathing room to go up? Or are you pretty fucking lean now? We're just all breathing room and you just go up. Um, so I think there's also that group of people for whom uh, just maintaining is a really good idea for a while. But if you're sufficiently well-trained, you know, maintenance doesn't have the allure it used to because it just doesn't yield super great results and nothing beats bulking at that point. So then it depends on where you are body fat wise. Like if you're up real high towards the 2025 range, maybe you cut to give yourself some room. Uh, and if you're on the lower end, for sure, just go. And I think uh, between those two extremes, it's always a sort of a negotiation process. The last thing I will say is like, um, make sure the clients, for those folks listening, make sure your client knows the long-term plan and make sure they're okay with it, at least with the notion of it. Because a lot of times people are like, all right, you're down to 10%. They're like, I love it. Like, all right, it's time to bulk to 20. They're like, what? Fuck that. Like, well, that's the only reason we took it down to 10%. And so a lot of times I think coaches maybe don't communicate enough with their clients. And it's like, just trust me, bro. Trust the process. Um, it's so funny. Real, almost done with my rant, I promise. One of the things um, we get a lot at RP and like the clients group 
is people will have doubts and they'll say, well, what about this? Why is the app telling me to do that? And some other people have gotten this thing, which I appreciate where they're coming from, where they say, just trust the process. I have every now and again, in my more irksome days, I've gone on there and be like, folks, you don't actually have to trust the process because we have like 10 books to explain the process. Trust is not required. We'll explain to you why this is working. I think that same thing works with coaches and clients. Like I've never asked anyone to trust what I'm doing. I, I literally never said in the gym or diets, like, just trust me. I'm just like, well, I can explain to you why I think this is the case. And I may be wrong, but it's my best guess. So I think that communication is wise. Sorry for the long fucking tangent, man. No, I, I thought that was really good. And and I definitely agree that there are many cases where, you know, someone comes in and, you know, like I said, you know, the, the situation is I don't have a lot of muscle. I have more fat than I want. My long-term goal involves getting leaner and bigger. Um, and, and so I think there's all sorts of circumstances where it makes sense to say, let's just recomp, let's revisit in, you know, after a couple blocks of training. Um, or if it's someone who you know that in order for them to be excited about the process and buy in, of course we can take them down to 10 or 12% body fat and not sacrifice anything. And as long as that's not a huge reduction in weight, we probably don't even have to worry about the potential of a less favorable P ratio during weight regain as long as we're being mindful of how rapidly we start refeeding and ramping up calories from there. We, that's very, very manageable almost always, you know, so I think, uh, I think, like I said, we, we agree uh, on most practical applications. And I think there's a lot of different ways, like some people like me, I don't like to do a lot of, you know, quick bulking and mini cutting and, and back and forth. It's a doable thing. There are pros and cons, you know, absolutely. But, you know, the, the biggest thing that I, I worry about is just misapplication of the P ratio concept and people feeling that they are forced or cornered into a decision, into a decision because P ratio is this driving factor that can't be overcome within, you know, th this body fat range where a lot of lifters live, you know, between 10, 25, 30% body fat. And so, for me, I do want to give the P ratio, uh, I, I assume we'll be wrapping up relatively soon, but I want to make sure I give the P ratio a little bit of credit. You know, I want to be fair here. So I think the P ratio concept, I, I don't think the P ratio itself is driving anything. I, I think we do see the P ratio during cuts go, get very high at the end because something's got to go, right? I mean, we're in a caloric deficit and there's no fat left. Yes, lean, lean mass loss is going to ramp up when you're looking at P ratio in that concept. I think the P ratio also has value as an, in, an intrinsic characteristic of the individual that varies from person to person when we look at overfeeding in the absence of a stimulus for lean mass accretion. So if you're not recovering from anorexia and you don't have atrophy of lean tissues, if you're not doing resistance training, I think P ratio is simply showing us that there are some people who are far more predisposed to easily add weight in the context of overfeeding. And the acute overfeeding studies show us that in a very controlled way, you know, two different people, some people are very prone to very easily add body fat. Some people, they ramp up their energy expenditure really effectively, and they don't really add much mass at all, but they certainly don't gain as much fat. So the P ratio, I, I don't want to say like, oh, Forbes Hall, idiots they don't know anything this p ratio is like made up i mean no of course it exists it's it is simply a metric of two things that we know exist so it has to exist but i think the biggest thing i'd want to impart on people is that the p ratio is not an independent driver uh of you know once you get to a certain body fat you're screwed and and it's going to be a total uphill battle for gaining mass i think the the model that i work with is everyone's got their own p ratio that's that's pretty intrinsic 
Uh, we might need to be a little bit mindful of weight regain following really extreme weight loss attempts, either huge drops in weight or getting absolutely shredded. Um, and then outside of those contexts, I think, you know, how, how, how can I really manipulate my P ratio beyond my starting point that I inherited? I think, well, weight gain is going to be dictated by the magnitude of the caloric surplus and the ratio of that weight gain uh, that, that's going to be lean mass is going to be largely dictated by your training status and your training stimulus. And so if you've got someone who's really sweating over P ratios, I'd say forget about our starting body fat as the main driver. Let's look at the stuff that we can actually manipulate. And that is, let's try to give the most effective training stimulus that we can. And let's try to give us give ourselves enough of a caloric surplus that we can put on some lean tissue, but not overshoot the rate at which we can gain lean mass. And I think from my perspective, it's a really concise, tidy model that we can operate with. That, uh, that that makes people, I, I don't want people to be, like I said, kind of cornered into a decision based on the idea that the P ratio is going to make or break their, their gains based on their starting body fat. Um, and like I find with literally every conversation I have uh, in the evidence-based fitness world with people who are, you know, acting in good faith and well-informed, what do you know? We agree on 99% of the stuff. It's just, you know, slight circumstances where we might diverge. It's just this, the disagreements are particularly toxic in this case and emotionally sad. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's it's so funny though. Like whenever, <laughs> whenever I see people who are getting really worked up about this, it's like, could you imagine trying to explain this argument to somebody who doesn't give a damn about <laughs> what we do and just being like, yeah. So this guy was saying that your P ratio would be better at 15% than 18%. I was like, dude, what's wrong with you? Like, trying to explain these little like quibbles, especially when people get worked up. It's like, dude, we, we agree on 99% of it. It's fine. That's a, a true moral failing to think of P ratios in the wrong way. Um, Absolutely. I would like to say that it's like the book excerpt that started all this was from um, a book of ours that was written considerably some time ago. And actually before reposting it, I have a, a colleague of ours who makes snippets for me and I'll post them. I read through it and I was like, ah, man, a lot more nuance can be injected into this. But since I haven't rewritten the book yet, I sort of rolled the dice. I was like, fuck it. I think this still conveys some value to some people. And then uh, that's what started the shitstorm. So it was funny because I thought right before posting, you know, am I really of this acute of an opinion now as I was then when I wrote the book? No. Uh, could there be, be more nuance? No. You know, sort of not every post is perfect. Um, uh, so it's kind of like I think that, that had probably a lot to do with what was said in the snippet wasn't exactly lined with my current views and it's probably a bit more extreme but then again like you know every every time something leaves your mouth five seconds later you may have a more nuanced opinion about it so i think it was still sort of sort of that positive to put it out there and of course it sparked really good discussions so um so there's that uh and one last thing i'd like to mention just so people so it's not left out i do think that uh for people using uh in uh, special sports supplement enhancements I think there is more of an impetus to stay on the leaner end of things, specifically because of the way growth hormone and injectable insulin and androgens interact as, as your adiposity rises from 10% to into the uh, high teens and 20s, all of those mechanisms tend to be much more degraded. Um, and because they're super physiological in nature, they degrade considerably, usually at the expense of not only P ratios, but very much your health. So if you're using growth hormone, insulin, and androgens, I think the 10 to 18% range is probably where I, if, also if you're using them, you're probably competitive, I should hope, 
And uh, you probably just don't want to leave that 18% top end anyway. But I think there are some really distinct negatives of administering those compounds to folks in the 18 plus percent. So if someone was in the 25% body fat range and they're like, should I be using injectable insulin combined with growth hormone? I'd say it's uh, probably a profoundly bad idea. Um, people do use it, however, pro strongmen do fit that category, do use all those. They tend to not live for a very long time, um, unfortunately. That's probably no no uh, coincidence. So I would just reserve that. So I think some folks will be listening to the podcast and some folks you know, do have that sort of, their, their viewership is enhanced. And they'll, they're going to ask, inevitably, they're going to say, well, what about enhanced? Uh, so that's my 30-second piece on what about enhanced. So again, conjecture, but um, I think almost nobody in the enhanced coaching side disagrees with that, and some people push for even leaner. Um, but I think that's charitably my best interpretation of that. Yeah, and you've probably never heard me specifically give any uh, advice getting into the enhanced side of things. Cause like, believe it or not, as a bodybuilder who competes under 160 pounds, I am in fact drug-free. Uh, and I wish more people would Bullshit. accuse me other, <laughs> I wish more people would accuse me otherwise, but it hasn't been happening lately, which is really frustrating. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I lean on experience as a, a natural dude who coaches natural dudes, no judgment whatsoever. As long as you're not cheating, I hope everybody's happy and loving what they do. Uh, but, but I also lean on research and it, research is so limited when you get into those enhanced applications that, I mean, honestly, the anecdotes are, are better than the, I mean, if we had the research, of course we would lean on it, but, but the people who have been observing this in the real world for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of case studies, I, I think have in some ways a lot more, uh, useful observations than what you could scrounge together from, from how limited the research is, especially when you consider dosing considerations. Guys, thank you so much for this chat. I think whilst we said it's like niche and uh, maybe some people won't find it super valuable, I think a lot of people will just even when I sport, uh, speak for myself from previous times trying to gain, I definitely kept myself needlessly in a very tight lean bound. I can specifically remember talking to Broderick Chavez, uh, who um, obviously, hopefully a lot of the audience will remember. He hasn't been on the show for a while, but he suggested that I let my body fat come higher uh, for the exact reason that Mike mentioned in terms of estrogen and the effect that might have on my testosterone. And lo and behold, I have had a very, very productive gaining phase, letting my body weight and body fat go higher. And even senses of like libido, like markers like that, that you might expect to improve, they did. And I, I just say that because hopefully some of the listeners might follow me, may have seen that I've improved. And so when they're thinking, oh, I can't let my body fat go up, I don't know, I'm not lean enough. Like you definitely can. And I, I think, I don't know if the practical take home, because it seems like there is a lot of range for us to gain really well at when we're thinking about gaining muscle mass, training is the most important component, at least as far as I'm concerned. So they should feel like they can train their best, perform their best, feel their best. So they should have like good energy, good libido, um, all of those factors. They shouldn't be sleeping poorly because they're so lean or anything like that. But likewise, like Mike mentioned the health, you shouldn't feel so kind of lethargic and that you have taken 10 minutes between sets. So kind of training at a body fat, you feel your best. I always see that as just a, an easy kind of guideline for people to at least maybe that could be a nice practical take home very non-nuanced of course <laughs> i don't know if there's yeah. any thoughts <laughs> if that's no no i read. think that's great yeah i mean you got it you got to feel good like the for most of us this is just a hobby so if you're going around feeling like shit all day for a thing that's supposed to be bringing you joy like that's you, you gotta 
you know, find that balance and, and it's best for gains too. You got to go into the gym, feel great. Um, you know, should be sleeping well, good libido. That's a, generally a good way to live having good libido. Like that, that's nice. Uh, as, as a natural bodybuilder, I've tried the, the opposite, you know, being shredded, not fun. Uh, but no, I think that's a really nice practical summary. And I really appreciate both you guys, uh, you know, having the conversation with me. I think this is a really productive conversation. And uh, I think hopefully listeners will find it to be really useful and, and productive. And I'd, if you have time, I only have one more thought on my mind is I know a lot of, I, I find the people that get most concerned with P ratios are younger, often younger men, at least I deal with, under muscled, and they really want to get lean and they overestimate their body fat percentage. And they look at guys who are bigger and they underestimate their body fat percentage because they're bigger. And so they have lumps and bumps kind of underneath that fat. And so they can look leaner at higher body fat. And they get very obsessed with trying to diet down to super lean levels. And like you said there, Eric, they just are in this horrible spiral of never going to a true mass. So I guess just to hear it from your guys' mouths as well, like when you are a little bit under muscled, you, you aren't going to look necessarily as shredded and as great as someone who's been doing this a decade. And they could be 20% body fat and looking great, whereas you, you're not going to look the same as what they are. So yeah, just kind of get your head down and eat and feel good and gain muscle. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's the biggest thing is I, I have been in situations, like we said, where you're working with somebody who their long-term goal involves a lot of muscle gain and fat loss. And they say, I'm really enthusiastic about gut cutting first. And I say, that's okay, but we need to be prepared for that moment when we look in the mirror and say, I thought I, I thought I ordered shredded, but I received skinny. And that's Refund. usually, <laughs> yeah. And, and that's usually a, a bad day for a lot of people. And, and so I say like, as long as you're comfortable with the, the high likelihood that we're going to, we're going to get to that day and then start our bulk from there. And, and that's part of the process. We can make that the process and we can still be very effective, but we can't have that day where we look in the mirror and say, I thought I was getting shredded. Instead, I got skinny and I'm going to, you know, bail on the whole process, you know? Fantastic. Guys, thank you so much for this chat. It's been great. Um, obviously, so much, guys. you guys know where to reach Mike. Hopefully, Renaissance Periodization, RP Dr. Mike over on Instagram. Um, and I, I guess those are the best two places for you, Mike. Loads of stuff going over on your YouTube as well, as always, with the weekly webinars and tons of informative videos. Maybe you're I don't know. Maybe one will come out on P ratios. I bet there's one. In, there's going to be one in the works now. I bet. <laughs> and there's Eric, not for there's the not. next five years. So. <laughs> You've already got too much content. And then Eric, um, obviously you haven't been on the show for a while. Where is people? Where are they best to go out and reach you? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks again for having me, uh, Mike. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk through this. I was more polite than I intended to be, but you are bigger than me, and you know how to. Uh, you know, you're good at jujitsu. So I was very concerned about that. Uh, so whenever travel is allowed again, I, I know that I don't have to worry about being in the same room <laughs> as you, which is good. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, my handle is at Trexler Fitness and you can find me over at strongerbyscience.com. And uh, if people aren't listening to the Stronger by Science podcast as well, definitely make sure you are because that's a, it's a fun podcast. Lots of this sort of talk as well. So yeah, thank you for both coming on and we'll talk to you soon. Take care guys. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. 
the Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. It's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.